Good morning. You may not feel at this very moment that it is well with your soul, and that declaration may have been hard for you to sing. But I, I pray for you, and have been praying for you, that by the time you leave, you'll be able to say it's well with me. If I had been able to sit where you were sitting, or are sitting now, when I came home on a home assignment, or I came home for good, it would not have been easy for me to be where you are. And my joy meter would have been on empty. (laughs) Um, And so I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for ministries like Thrive, who really care about your souls. You are not projects. You are people who really need a a lift, a, a, a boost up. And I'm grateful that we're here in order to do that. I told you last night that I've been studying joy since December 29th. I have studied hard. I have read lots of books. There is absolutely no way in three sessions I can empty what is in my head. But I do blog, and I get, uh, every Monday I post a blog on... Um, a website, and this just happens to be my address if you want to kind of get the thorough look. It is www.peg just a thought.blogspot.com. That's a pretty long address, isn't it? I should make it easier. So, www.peg just a thought.blogspot.com. I guess I would start by asking you where's your joy meter? Where, if, if it looked like a fuel tank you know, in your car, or the meter in your car that registers your fuel tank, where, where would it be? I, I don't want to see it, but get a picture of that in your mind. Um, where is it as you come here? And, and I, I, I want to just kind of set the stage right away. I'm going to show you a picture of my happy place. This is my happy place. Those are my 14 grand treasures. That is my drop-dead gorgeous, good-looking, godly husband. When the 16 of us are together, I don't care about the other people that come with them usually, but when the 16 of us are together, are they not just delightful? Look at this. Look at this one. (laughs) I just, he cracks me up. Anyway, they all do. this is my happy place, and when I am in my happy place, my joy meter like is overflowing. The gas tank is spilling out. But I, we're not talking about happy. I, I want to clarify that. We're, we're always filled with joy when we're in our happy place, and I don't know what your happy place is, but we're always filled with joy when we're there. We're not talking about happy because as you know and I know, happiness happens when things happen the way we want them to happen. And so that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about joy. How can we have joy, deep-seated joy, when things aren't necessarily happening the way we want them to happen? And so to, today and tomorrow, we're going we're gonna to take a look at that. I, I want to share a personal story with you. 
I, I, wanna, I, I think I also told you last night, I am prone to lose my joy. I, I am prone to kind of spiral downward, and I, and I know that about myself. I tend to try to surround myself with people who make me laugh or who rub you know, joy off on me. But I, I was thinking about probably the hardest time for me where it was the most difficult moment in my life so far where I have really struggled to grab a hold of joy and maintain it. And, and that's, that's the story I, I want to share with you this morning. My husband and I were missionaries for a season at Rift Valley Academy in Kajabi, Kenya. And that was the most delightful season of my, of my life. I love that ministry. I have never felt so fulfilled in ministry before. I am not saying it was an easy place. There were some hard, hard things that happened while we were there. But it was for me a, a season of true joy as I got to serve the Lord doing what? I got to live with high school kids. I can't. What youth pastor would not think they had died and gone to heaven? And my husband and I loved it. And we thought we were going for the rest of our lives. We packed a crate, everything we owned except for my husband's grandmother's piano and his saddle went in our crate. And we hauled it all over to Kenya. So imagine my shock when all of a sudden we started sensing that the Lord was calling us back to the U.S. And I knew it. My spirit was starting to get restless. And I started having, you know, every scripture I, start, I was reading pointing in the direction of a, a transition and a change. And I knew it was coming. And I thought, I am not saying thing one to my husband. Because I don't want to go back to the U.S., so I knew I had to take it up with God. And I sat down one morning, grabbed my journal, and I began to write. Here are the, re in fact, I wrote at the top of it, the reasons I should not go back to the United States. <laughs> and I began to fill in the list. One, two, three. I mean, it filled, like in a journal, it filled like three or four pages. And I got done. And seriously, this happened. I don't hear the Lord speak with an audible voice. I, I don't know many people who have. I, I have heard of a few, but I, I'm not one. But I got done, and in my head, and I thought it must be the Lord because it sounded like something he would say, I heard these words, Are you through? <laughs> <clears throat> yes, sir. <laughs> And then this came into my, into my head, and I jotted it down at the bottom of my scripture, or, or my, my list. Go back and read your list again, because those are the very reasons I want you to go back to the United States. So convicting. And I knew we were called. So my husband and I, it was, a, it was a break. It was one of our one-month breaks, you know, at RVA. Um, as most boarding schools, the students go three months and they're home for a month. They're at school for three months, home for a month. So we were, were in our month off. And my husband and I had gone to work with some missionaries on a working ranch in northern Kenya. And we were just loving the time together. And um, 
Bay says to me one day, I, we really need to, you know, we need a, a, just a little space of time where you and I can go talk. And I looked at him and I said, we're going home, aren't we? And he said, I think so. I think the Lord has called us both home. And so we came. We came home with 12 duffel bags. That was all we brought. We um, moved into a house that had belonged to my mother and father-in-law. They had built a smaller place. They wanted us to live in their house. And little by little, we were going to purchase that from them. You know, when you're on home assignment, you don't have time to think about much because you don't really ever let the dust settle. You're so busy trying to raise support. And, you know, it's, but when you're transitioning and the dust settles, it's not easy. And you, you know it. There are some of you in here who know that feeling. I started the spiral downwards. And I found myself on the cereal aisle of City Market. It's not a big grocery store. But I found myself on the cereal aisle in a heap. Because we had three choices of cereal in the stores in our little grocery store. There was white cardboard, chocolate cardboard, and cardboard threw it away because I start looking like a missionary again. <laughs> um, but, but then there was the issue of, of friends. You know, I left with a good, solid group of friends. And I came home, and some of them had moved away. Some of them had moved on to other friends. They were in different seasons of their life. And, and honestly, I felt so alone. And I, I finally rationalized, you know, I wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt, and I finally figured out what it was, why I, I must seem unapproachable. I decided they were embarrassed. Because we, the whole time we'd been gone, we'd sent home newsletters. We were very faithful to try and tell those who were supporting us what we'd been doing on the mission field. But as I've recently discovered by sending out e-newsletters, about 30 to 40% of people you send out e-newsletters to actually open the letters. So what are the chances that even those hard copies got opened and not just thrown into the round file? And they didn't know what had been going on. They didn't know what questions to ask. They, seriously, it wasn't their fault. They were embarrassed. They didn't even know what questions to ask. But I was so alone. My church was another situation. <laughs> Entirely. They didn't know what to do with us. We had been the missionaries. Before we left, we had a position. Those positions were all filled. Now we were the missionaries, but what do you do with the missionary who's not on the field? What do you do with, what do you do with us? And we had no niche. We couldn't find a niche. And that was just, just a series of things. You can list more. Uh, I missed things. I'm, I, I was telling Dorothy yesterday, you know what I grieved for the most? My German shepherd. 
It was the, the big things, you know, you, you, you deal with. It's the little unexpected things that really get to you. And that spiral just kept going downward and downward. And I was just being sucked down like in quicksand in, into this dark place. And it was like, finally, the straw that broke the camel's back was the day I took my kids to school. We had asked our children to please pray about where God would have them go to school. They did have options. I could homeschool, which I really didn't feel like I wanted to do. We, you know, we did have a Christian school. It would be pricey and strapping for us because we weren't on a Saturday. We still weren't sure what we were doing home. You know, one step at a time, God was unveiling for us what we thought was his plan and reason for us, but we, it took a while for that plan, plan to unveil. You know, and Carmichael says there's two ways God reveals his will to us. One is the Red Sea kind of crossing where, I mean, the waters part and you cross. And the other is like the Jordan River. You've got to put one foot in and it parts a little. You put another foot in and it parts a little. You know, it, and that was this one for us. So we still didn't really know what we were doing. But I took my kids. My kids, one of them wanted to go to the Christian school, the youngest, which was a great idea. The older two decided they were going to be missionaries. They were going to the public school. And they really believed that. One was going into high school, the other went into eighth grade. So I had a ninth grader and eighth grader. I dropped him off at school. And that morning I felt like, I felt like the person who threw Daniel into the lion's den. I was just consumed with it. And I came home. I grabbed my Bible, knew I needed a little chat with Jesus, went out to my back porch, and I started to read where I'd left off in Galatians. And I started reading some really hard words from Paul. And I began to underline those hard, hard words. Go ahead. They were, the, what, word, the phrases I underlined were in 3.1, 4.11, 4.15, and 4.20. I'm going to put the scriptures up there for you to read. Um, you can follow if you want. I had them in my journal. I went back and read them exactly as I wrote them. And here's what Paul said. I was really shocked at how, how these words, how difficult these words were. He said, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Are you so easily deceived? I fear for you that somehow, let's hear this, I've wasted my efforts on you. Wow, Paul, really? What's happened to your joy? Indeed, I'm perplexed by you. Those were his words. That's what I wrote down in my journal. I stopped and I looked, you foolish Galatians, what? has happened to your joy. And Paul stepped out of the pages of Galatians with some accountability, with some truth, with some words of conviction, with some hard stuff for me to think about. I, I looked at the word joy 
in whatever translation you have, it may not use the word joy. Because the Greek word that he really uses there is makarios, which is a sense of satisfaction or a sense of blessedness. So I think even like in the ESV, if that's what you use, I think what the question is written, what has happened to your sense of blessedness? Oh, did that resonate with me? I sat there on my porch, and as I was weeping, I realized at that very moment, something in my head and my heart connected, and I, I knew that was what I needed. I knew that was at least a key to stop that spiral downward for me. I had lost my sense of blessedness. Blessed be the Lord. When the sun's shining down on me, when the world's all as it should be, blessed be the Lord. But blessed be the Lord when I'm found in the desert place. I, among all women, knew I was greatly blessed. I had so much to be thankful for. But somehow, in the midst of the transition, for me, my sense of blessedness was overshadowed by the, by the struggle, by the, the stuff that I expected to be there when I got home. My expectations were not met, and because of that, it overshadowed how blessed I really was. I sat that morning and I began to list the most specific, minute details of my life and how God had blessed us. And I began to turn a corner. But that is only just a small key, a sense of blessedness. That is only just a small part of finding joy in the midst of difficulty or in the midst of our circumstances. There is so much more. So let's look at defining joy. Galatians 5.22 says that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. This is the Greek word kara, an interesting word. Uh, those who have studied hermeneutics, who love to do word studies, they have defined it in four, four words, a spirit of gladness. It's very Pollyanna-ish. For those of you who are old enough, who have seen the little Disney movie Pollyanna, you know that as an orphan, she played the glad game. And that is how that sweet little girl found joy in her life and just bubbled over, spilled over onto everyone she met. And that's a great definition, but I wasn't really completely, completely satisfied with it. I, I, I know that kara is the root of the Greek word uh, charis, which is grace. So I know that it is a gift of grace. That expounded it a little bit. I still wasn't quite happy with it. Uh, I then began to kind of look at the combination between the, that root word and, and some of our English words. And kara is root for our, our word charisma. Now sometimes that word gets a little bit of a bad connotation because we substitute it for fanatical. And, and that's not what it means. Charisma means uh, that, 
there's an attractiveness. That, that, that the person who is charismatic has an influence on someone else. And so, you know, I was, I was good with that. It kind of gave me the why, the why of joy. And so here's the why of joy, and then we'll continue on, and I'll give you my definition. You see, joy really is a magnet to others. It is. Joy is that thing which influences the spiritual in other people. The lost need to see joy in us because somehow they have this mindset. I, I, part of two books I read while I was in the middle of this study, one was Vanishing Grace by Phil Yancey. The other was Unchurched, and I, I kind of lost the name of the author. But in those books, they talk about how believers today really don't have a positive influence on the lost around them. And I wondered, is it because we've lost that appeal? Is it because we've lost the attractiveness of Jesus in us? If, if joy is there, it's, it's spilling over. And when we rub shoulders with the people around us, we're able to kind of uh, spritz them with refreshing joy. It's important. It's, yes, love is important. Through the Spirit is love. But joy has kind of been lost in the shuffle of our lives. And we need joy because that is how we become Jesus with skin on to other people. We, we really need it. Well, that's well and good. Um, but what I did in order to find my own definition, I started looking, I read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and then I started looking specifically at characters of the Bible that I, I relate to or I really appreciate in some way. And I've picked three of those. Not necessarily in order. I picked Peter. I relate to Peter. Open mouth, insert foot. But what I appreciated about Peter was that when Peter was in tough circumstances, in the middle of a rocky boat, in the middle of a raging sea, Peter got out of the boat. He was the only one who got out of the boat. Can you imagine what he must have felt like? Put yourself in his position. He gets out of the boat and he's standing on water. Can you imagine what was flooding through him? And as he walked toward Jesus, can you just imagine in the midst of a raging storm around him, high waves, he's walking on water to Jesus. I think he was pretty full of joy. But it was craziness around him. Absolute craziness around him. So from Peter, I learned that joy is a who, not a what. You see, joy depends not on our circumstances. Joy depends entirely on who holds them. Joy is a who. I looked at Mary, Jesus' mother. I, I love Mary. I think, I, as, I, as I think about her, I just sense this calm spirit of joy. And in spite of the fact that this woman, the mother of our Lord, as she looked at her baby in the cradle, saw it overshadowed by a cross, somehow 
she was able to maintain throughout his lifetime up to his death and resurrection and beyond that into Ephesus, she was able to maintain a spirit of joy. And I admired that in her, and I wondered, what was it about Mary that kept her having a spirit of joy? And from Mary, I learned that um, joy is pondering. Joy is reflecting. Joy is remembering. Joy is a memory. And so I wrote it this way. With Peter, joy is a who. With Mary, joy is history. With the one who has been faithful in our lives. And of course, last and certainly most important, Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame. Jesus, who for the joy set before him. What was Jesus' joy? Me? Well, maybe you. That I personalized it. I, Peggy Forrest, I am Jesus' joy. Put your name in there. You were Jesus' joy. Toya. Toya is Jesus' joy. So with Jesus, what, what was the joy? It was his mission to seek and save the lost. We were Jesus' joy. Joy is a who It is history, and it is a mission. Here's my very wordy definition. Joy is an inner sense of calm because of the who, the Lord of my life. I I want you to hear those words. It's an inner sense of calm. It's an uncluttered mind. If anything gets me in trouble, it's the clutteredness of my mind. Joy is the ability to declutter I I think of my mind as a junk drawer. I have one at home, and I looked in it before I left. Indeed, my mind is just like that junk drawer, very often. But it's an ability to declutter it in spite of circumstances because I have a history with the who, who is faithful in my life. And it is an internal blitheness. That's, that's a word we don't use much anymore. I love it. it it's a lack of due concern. It, it's a calm spirit. Um, it's, it's a lightheartedness, not in a careless way, but just in an assurance that I have a hope for tomorrow because I have been called to a mission. Ladies, you are so greatly blessed whether you're on home assignment going back or your home assignment and you're, you're here in transition, God has for you a joy job. He does. Just like Jesus, he has for you a joy job. And I suppose from worship this morning, if there was a Twitter concise way of saying, of taking something away from worship this morning, that I would want to share with you because it was something that I needed when I, if I could have been sitting where you were, Jesus commands your destiny. Jesus commands your destiny. What an assurance. What joy. Joy is an inner sense of calm in the who, an uncluttered mind because of history and an internal blitheness of spirit because there's hope for tomorrow. 
and a mission to which we're called. Out of that, I dispelled three myths I did not know I had. Myth number one, Jesus is a man of sorrows. Dot, 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 dot. See the little words? Only. Yes, Isaiah 53.3 says that Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He is indeed acquainted with grief. He is indeed a man of sorrows. He grieves over our sins. He's sad at the state of our world. But he is not just a man of sorrows. This picture hangs on my wall at home. If my house burns, that picture is the first one I'm taking. I love that picture. It traveled to Africa with me. It came home in my 12 duffel bags. I love that picture of Jesus laughing. Here's why. When I was on the mission field, an older woman who was kind of a mentor to me sat down with me in a Bible study one day, and she, she asked me a very simple question. She said, Peg, if Jesus were knee to knee with you, If he were knee-to-knee with you, what would be the look on his face? And I said he would be disappointed with me. I'm not sure he wouldn't even be crying. Because I'm thinking to myself at the time, oh, there's so much more I could be doing. There was just so much internal guilt over not being able to meet needs the way they needed to be met. Jesus would be disappointed with me. And she just shook her head and she said, Oh, no, he delights in you. And she showed me scripture. She left. I went and put in a cassette tape. Remember those? (laughs) Put in a cassette tape. And the first song that came on was Stephen Kirst Chapman. And the words to the song were, Sometimes his eyes were gentle and filled with laughter. And I just, I just turned the thing off. (laughs) I had to stop and think about that. Indeed, Jesus laughed. He was attractive. People were attracted to him. He drew crowds. A man of sorrows only would not have drawn 5,000 people. He was a magnet. The lost flocked to him. The wounded came close to him. He was not, and I didn't realize, I mean, I did not even think that I had just bought into that, but I had, that Jesus was always sorrowful. And that oftentimes, because we believe that, the lost people around us see him as a cosmic killjoy, judgmental, disappointed in us. Because that is what we reflect to them. Jesus isn't just a man of sorrows. Number two. Sorrow, anger, fear, and disgust we consider to be negative emotions. And they cannot exist or be mixed with joy. They're kind of like oil and vinegar. You know, you can't, or oil and water. You can't mix them together. And, and that is a myth. How many of you have seen Pixar's Inside Out? Raise your hands. Not enough of you. You all need to leave here. It should have been a field trip for this retreat. 
I, I, best, best Disney movie, I think, because it addresses some of these, this myth for one, but also because it addresses some much needed opportunity to have discussion in a healthy way about the emotions that rule our mind. It's the voices inside our head. Joy, anger, disgust, fear, sorrow. We think they can't, if, that if we're sad, we can't have joy, that they're contrary and opposite to one another. That is not true. I want to dispel that myth right off the bat. See, we can't experience joy if we've never been sad. We can't experience joy if fear doesn't step up in a healthy way and keep us safe. So joy and sorrow, joy and anger, joy and fear run parallel to each other. Don't buy into the fact that emotions control your life and dictate what you do. They may be teachers, but the two of them, those two opposite emotions, always run parallel to each other. So we, we need to dispel that myth quickly. Here's what happened. I sat down in, uh, oh, here's the third one. I need to give you this one. I'm totally responsible for my joy. I choose joy. Now this is semantical, very semantical. I, I'm to choose joy. Galatians 5.22, it's a fruit of the spirit. It's a gift. We don't choose joy. Jesus gives us joy through the Holy Spirit. What we're going to find is what I discovered as I began this journey. I had sat down in, uh, I sat down in Woody Creek Cafe in Terminal B of Denver International Airport, and I took out a napkin, and I drew a map of where I thought I was going to get to my destination of joy. Joy was my destination. I was on a journey to get to joy. And I quickly discovered that is not right. This is that whole concept of I am choosing to get to joy. And what I realized quickly when I finally got to Galatians 5 and looked at that verse, I don't choose it, I create space for it. So you can go to the new map. Here's my new map. A little less cluttered, a little more clear. Here is the journey, birth to earth all the way down, death to heaven. Here I got saved, here I went to Africa, who knows what's left on my map. But I create space for Jesus to implant in me the Holy Spirit to gift to me that spirit of gladness, that internal blitheness of spirit, that uncluttered, settled mind. I have to create space for it. No, you can go back to that because I want to do, it's okay. We didn't talk about this. I, I want to give you just a quick, quick, quick overview. We've got to be in his presence. This is like the still waters of in. I cross the inn and I get to Sabbath. I've got to have Sabbath in my life. Got to have Sabbath in my life. On the island of Sabbath, there are several places I must visit. We'll try to talk about them quickly. Church is part of it. It's not the only part of Sabbath. Church is part of it. Sabbath is not an event. It's an experience and an attitude of the heart. We go to the city of salvation often in the island of Sabbath. 
This is just a quick overview. We spend time in play. We go to the highlands of hope, time at the banquet table, and all the rest of this is just green pastures that we're supposed to lie around in. <laughs> so real quickly, how do we create space for joy? Places to visit on this joy journey. The still waters of in. In your presence is fullness of joy, and in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Ladies, when we are in his presence, in the fullness of joy, we need to be paying attention to what's in his hand. That's where that sense of blessedness comes from. He has gifts forevermore that he holds out in front of us, and we need to be paying attention at what's in there and be thankful for what we have. We'll come back to that. Moving on, the island of Sabbath. The reason for Sabbath is right here. Exodus 28 to 11, uh, 28 through 11 is our command. But for six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and then he rested on the seventh day. That, it's an invitation, but more. It is a command. It is a command to, but, but the, I hate to say it that way because it, it's a strong invitation. Let's put it that way. It's an invitation we can't turn down because we get to go into the presence of the sacred in the middle of Sabbath. We get to experience such intimacy with him. But I also want you to see this verse because it emphasizes how strong it is. Isaiah 58, 13 to 14. You must obey God's law about the Sabbath and not do what pleases yourself on that holy day. You should call the Sabbath a joyful day and honor it as the Lord's day. You honor it by not doing whatever you please nor saying whatever you please on that day. And what does it say? Then you will find your joy in the Lord. How many of us are just too busy to Sabbath? Even on what we set aside as the Sabbath, we use it as a time to catch up. It is meant to rest. Next, church, the fuel station for joy. Church, is supposed to be a place where we go to one another, one another's tank to fullness. See, our joy isn't just for the lost. Our joy is for one another. We need one another to rub shoulders with so that we can experience joy. I have a friend in my life who is one of the most joy-filled people I know. I intentionally invite her to go on walks with me just so I can come home with a little bit of joy spritzing. But we need that. Jesus said, where two or three gather in my name, in my name, gather together, there I am with you. His presence is there. In his presence is what? Fullness of joy. We need church. David said in the Psalms of Ascension, when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord, my heart leapt with joy. We need church. It is not a place to be entertained. It is not a place to celebrate somebody else's talents. It's not about the pastor, though it helps. It's not about the worship, but it is a place where we, where we share together and help restore and encourage one another. 
I need church for my soul to breathe. It's the oxygen every believer must have in the midst of the mundane and the ordinary to saturate our hearts with life. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage each other and all the more as we see the day approaching. We need church. Pastures of remembering. He makes me lie down in green pastures, Psalm 23 and 2. Doesn't that sound boring? What do we do when we lie down? Psalm 63, 6, when I lie down, I remember you. I meditate on you in the watches of the night. Psalm 42, 5, when I am cast down, when I am cast down, I remember you. I used to think focusing on the past dangerously drew us toward depression. Now I know I need remembering in order to rest fully in the sovereignty of God. But there's a little flip side to that, the opposite side of the coin, and we'll get to that too. But remembering is important. I need to remember my history with God so I can walk boldly into my future without fear. The city of salvation. You know what? I think I've overloaded you. And I want to, you know what? Um, we're going we're gonna to start here tomorrow. I, I really, I want to be sensitive to you. Um, and I'm, I'm, you're looking at me with glassy eyes. <laughs> and I, I really feel like we need to just stop a minute. I, and I'm rushing. <laughs> Besides, ladies, what I want you to get out of today is this. Not a list of to-dos. Please know I'm not laboring you with duty. I'm inviting you into a place of rest and remembrance because we ended with that one slide. If Sabbath has an initial responsibility to rest. It has a second one to remember. And I think for today, my assignment for you, my practical application for you today is I want you to remember. I want you to have some time to reflect on your blessedness. I want you to find some time to Sabbath. Some of you are in deep transition. Some of you are in fearful places. Some of you have lost a lot. I highly, highly value Elizabeth's session at 1 o'clock in here. Correct, Elizabeth? On transition, because it's, it's all about grief and loss. But when you have time... Today's assignment is to remember, to reflect. We'll talk about some of this other stuff. I, we, we'll have time to get it in tomorrow. I'm not worried about that. I want to be sensitive to you. I want you to know I know where you are. I get your life. One of the most helpful things to me was when somebody published a blog that explained to me that I had gone from a circle country to a square country 
and I didn't fit either country, so I became a triangle. And I was a different, I was just a different bird. It was refreshing to me to know that I was not alone. I was just different. And it's been helpful to me to think back on my on how blessed I really am. It has been helpful to me to spend time with people who spritz me with joy. It has been helpful for me to take a deep Sabbath and just rest in Him. So rest and remember. That's what I'm asking you to do today. And then we'll... We'll look at other ways to create space for Jesus to fill you with joy. Because more than anything, I want to overwhelm you. I want you to leave in here with your joy tanks full. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all you do for us. We are truly, indeed, women who are greatly blessed. Give us a sense of your presence, O oh Lord, I pray. Amen.